thanks. Just needed one more note. If you have your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 9, 37 through 45. There is a man who is in his mid-30s. He's in pretty good shape, exercises regularly. He's a salesman, does some traveling. Most of his sales are local. He has a wife, two children, ages two and four, a cat named Fluffy and a hamster named Godzilla. The hamster actually belongs to his children. One morning he wakes up with a fever. He doesn't think much of it, figures he's coming down with something, so he takes a couple aspirin, goes to work, his fever goes away, he feels fine, forgets about it. Two days later he has another little fever. This time it's more persistent, he feels a little bit fatigued. His wife tells him that he has to go see the doctor. So after the weekend, he consents. And even though he's feeling better on Monday, he goes to the doctor and has a bunch of tests done. And a week later, he has his doctor's appointment to find out what the tests say. The doctor says, I think you may have cancer. The blood work indicates that there are some scary things going on in his body. He's kind of shocked and scared because he just never thought that this would happen to him. He goes home and tells his wife she's taken back, scared, starts asking a bunch of questions he doesn't have the answers to. She is thinking that her husband is just too young, he's too healthy, he's too fit to have cancer. He just couldn't have cancer. The doctor orders more tests, which he gets done that week. Later on, he has the doctor's appointment, and sure enough, the CAT scan or MI reveal that he has tumors in his body. The doctor recommends seeing a specialist. Specialist. The specialist says, yes, this is what's happened. We're going to do surgery. They open him up, and he is so chucked full of cancer and tumors, they just sew him back up. His health diminishes rapidly. He struggles with denial. He has a hard time believing that he might die. It scares him to think that he might die. He racks his brain trying to figure out, what could I have done to stop this? And of course, there are no answers because he couldn't. He hopes for a miracle. He even tries getting religious, starts praying, doesn't receive a miracle. Two months later, the man dies, leaving his wife and two children behind. Well, that is a scary story. And it's a scary story because we all know people or know of people that things like this have happened to. We know it's scary, especially when that person doesn't know the Lord. When that person isn't ready to die. When they don't know the terrors that wait for them beyond the grave and yet they don't want Christ this side of the grave. But what if you knew somebody like this, and for some reason, you know, you knew they had cancer, would you tell them? And what if you knew where the cure was, would you tell them? Well, I have news for you. There is a disease that's worse than cancer. And it's always fatal. And it can kill you both physically and eternally. And that disease is sin. Sin passed down from Adam, passed through our parents, on to us. And all humanity is infected with it. You've got it, I've got it, everybody's got it. It's bad, it's really bad. And so I'm here to tell you right now, you have the scariest disease in the world, the disease of sin, its wages are death, both physically and eternally. And we're going to look at this disease this morning. We're going to look at it, its pervasiveness, how it affects us, its cure. And we've been looking at Luke 9, 37 through 45. Luke's purpose in chapter 9 has been to show us that Christ is in fact the Messiah, the Son of the living God. He is at the end of what is called his Galilean ministry. And Luke, as he shows us the end of Jesus' Galilean ministry, before Jesus then begins to head south towards Jerusalem, tells us four different failures the disciples, the twelve, had. First, 
They failed to grasp the purpose of the Mount of Transfiguration. You know, disregard the fact that they were praying or sleeping during prayer time. They wake up, see this incredible thing, and they leave the mountain going, what was that? And they're scared. They, they totally missed the whole super cool thing. They, they missed it. Secondly, in our text, they fail to trust God and hence cannot cast the demon out of the demon-possessed boy. Third, as we shall see, Lord willing, they fail by arguing about who will be the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And fourth and finally, they fail because they want to destroy the Samaritans when they don't want to receive Jesus. I think about that. You're sharing the gospel with somebody, you know, um, I'd like to tell you about Christ. Listen, I don't want to hear it. Okay, fine. You pull out the gun, shoot them. That's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to receive Jesus. Can we command fire to come down out of heaven and consume them? No. So we are presently in the midst of the second failure. In this section, we have four points. We're still in point one. We've looked at point one, sub point one. And now we're in point one, sub point two. Don't be unbelieving. Jesus says you unbelieving and perverted generation. Three years of training. Three years of miracles. Three years of private conversations, group conversations, public conversations. They still don't have a clue. They're still messed up big time. They just can't quite get it. And Jesus obviously is feeling some sanctified exasperation here. It's like, come on, people. Get with it. Now, how many more miracles do I have to do? How many times do I have to tell you, I am the Christ, the Son of the living God? God incarnate is here. And all you want to know is how you can heal the boy or what miracle you can have. Or you want to see the show. They're missing the whole big idea here. God has come among them and they, they're clueless. So Jesus says, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? And so we've already looked at the first sub point of don't be unbelieving, which is you unbelieving generation. This morning we want to look at perverted generation, you perverted generation. So follow along as I read Luke 9, 37 through 45. On the next day when the... They came down from the mountain. A large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy. And a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams. And it throws him into convulsions with foaming at the mouth. And only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Now, while he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground and threw him into a convulsion. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. But while everyone was marveling at all that he was doing, he said to his disciples, Let these words sink into your ears. For the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. But they could not understand this statement. And it was concealed from them so that they would not perceive it. They were afraid to ask about this statement. So, this morning we come to this same verse we've been kind of stuck in. Jesus comes down off the mountain with Peter, James, and John. The disciples, other nine, are arguing with the scribes. The crowd's running towards him because they want to show a miracle or whatever. The man breaks through and says, Teacher, heal my boy because I asked your disciples. They couldn't do it. And Jesus just says, Oh, you unbelieving and perverted generation. Now, what does this word perverted mean? Literally, it means... Twisted, crooked, warped, wayward, corrupt. That's what it means. It was used, for instance, of a potter. You know, you probably did the potter's wheel. 
kind of, they, you know, people who know how to do it, they make it look easy. But, you know, the guy throws it down there in the middle of the, of the potter's wheel, that big lump of clay, he gets some water, he starts molding it, he starts thinning out the sides and raising them up, and you have to hold really still and be very careful as you, you make the pot, and just then a fly buzzes in his ears, and he flinches. Pushes the sides of the pot, and pretty soon it just wobbles into a big contorted lump. It's perverted. That's what the word literally means. Here it is used as a synonym for sin. Unbelief always produces perversion of life, of thought, of deed. And so when Jesus says you unbelieving and perverted generation, he's really saying you unbelieving and sinful generation. Perversion is just another synonym for sin. Unbelief in the heart produces crooked, perverse, and twisted thoughts and actions. Unbelief and perversion always go together. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to just delve into this. Because we haven't done this for a while and we need to. I want to, I want to look at five aspects of sinful perversion. Just so you can understand it better. Because there are a lot of people who don't really understand sin all that well. And they need to. First, the origin of sin. Where did sin come from anyways? Well, if you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible, in Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything in six little 24-hour periods. At the end of the second day, he says, Behold, everything is very good. Tov mioz is very good. There's no sin there. We read other scriptures that tell us that during creation, God created the heavens and the earth and all they contain. Then you have chapter 2, which tells us more about what happened during the sixth day. And then you have chapter 3, and right at the beginning of chapter 3, you have the serpent, who we know is Satan, who is evil and is deceiving the woman. So what happened? Well, somewhere between the end of the sixth day of creation and the beginning of Genesis chapter 3... Satan rebelled against God, convinced a third of the holy angels to go with him, who are now we call demons. And Satan then, in malice, went down to earth in order to try and mess up what God had created to be very good. He deceived Eve into eating the tree from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Eve then gave it to Adam, who willfully rebelled against the command of God. And then they were cursed by God. They were at that time sinners. They hadn't eaten of the tree of life yet, which tells us it happened at a relatively quickly. They hadn't had any children. They were cursed sinners. And so all of their children then are sinners. And so here we are, sinners. Secondly, we must understand the scope of sinful perversion. You know, just how broad is the sin problem anyways? You know, you talk to certain people and they act like, yeah, some people are sinners. You know, axe murderers, serial killers, you know, maybe Hitler comes to mind or some other infamous tyrant. Just how bad is the sin problem in the world? Well, a good place to start is to look at the word generation. Jesus says, oh, unbelieving and perverted generation. How does Jesus use that word? Well, the word appears 43 times in the New Testament. It's a general statement for everybody who exists at any point of time. Jesus in Matthew eleven sixteen said, but to what shall I compare this generation? And he was speaking about everyone alive at that time. In Matthew 12:39 and 16:4, Jesus describes his generation as evil and adulterous. In Matthew 12:24, as an evil generation, in Mark 8:38, as an adulterous and sinful generation, in Luke 7:31, a generation which could not be pleased, and in Luke 11:29, a wicked generation. You kind of get the idea here. Jesus believed his generation was wicked and you know, Jesus is never wrong. So we know that in the estimation of Jesus, which is always right, his generation, everybody alive at that time was twisted, crooked, perverted, sinful. Now, I know this doesn't sound very promising. 
If I were to come up to you and say, your whole family is wicked. You would probably think, oh. but it would be true. Right? And you would understand that I meant anybody who qualifies as your family is wicked. You could say that to me. And Christ say, no, sir, we're holy. Now we're wicked too. Everybody is. That's Jesus's point. Jesus's generation was wicked. Now, does it mean that only Jesus's generation was wicked? No. We see other places where the word is used to describe all the generations which would follow after. Since all generations come from their wicked parents, Adam and Eve. And just as salt pervades the ocean, so sin pervades mankind. There are no exceptions. All have the disease. It's all terminal. Paul, speaking of the consequences of Adam's sin in Romans 5.12, says, Therefore, just as through one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered into the world and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. That's a bummer. Adam infected the entire human race. Just as dogs give birth to dogs and cats to cats and rats to rats and elephants to elephants. So sinners give birth to sinners. It's the only way it works. Your parents were sinfully perverted because their parents were sinfully perverted. And their parents all the way back to Adam and Eve were sinners. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, oh, just wait a minute. Are you trying to tell me that when I was born, when I was that cute little bundle of joy, that I was actually a sinner? Yes, yes, you're following it well. Turn to Psalm 51.5. Let's see what the Word of God has to say. This is David's great psalm of repentance and confession, Psalm 51.5. Notice what David says here. David says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Here David is not saying that he was the byproduct of an immoral relationship, but that from the very moment of conception, the very moment he was brought forth in his mother's womb, he was conceived in sin as a sinner. Look over to Psalm 58.3. Notice what it says there. Psalm 58.3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. These who speak lies go astray from birth. Notice. The wicked go astray, sin, speak lies from the womb, from birth. People are not born innocent and then become sinners. They are sinners and they sin because of it. Turn back to Genesis chapter 8. Genesis chapter 8 is where Moses, or Noah has just gone through the flood. He's just gotten off the ark. He's offering a sacrifice to God for preserving him from the flood and the ark. And this is what we read in verse 21. The Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth. Like salt on the sea, like oxygen in the air, the disease of sin is pervasive. It's part of our genetic code as the children, the sons and daughters of Adam. You were conceived in sin, born in sin, liars before you could speak. You were just waiting to get to the place you could speak so you could lie about it. And all parents discover this sooner or later. I mean, who has ever trained their toddler to say, no, I don't want to. You you ever see a parent say, okay, now when mommy asks you to do something, go, no. Parents don't teach their children those things. They know how to do that automatically. Children are born like corkscrews in our whole life. We're trying to get them fixed, straightened out. I mean, whoever taught their child, now when I change your diapers, kick and scream. They just do it automatically. 
Who needs to teach their child to manipulate and deceive and lie? No one. Why? They're born knowing how. It's in them. They have this sinful perversion passed down from you. And you got it from your parents, who got it from their parents, all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, you might be wondering, and you might be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor Jack, now, now um, why do I need to know this? This is kind of negative, you know? I've been going to a church where we don't talk about negative stuff like this. This sin and death and bad diseases. I mean, can't we talk about happy stuff? Not today. <laughs> Not until the very end. I mean, you would want to know if you had cancer, right? And you'd want to know how to get cured of it, right? You'd want to do everything you could if you knew a friend had cancer to let them know they had cancer and what they needed to do about it. You'd want them to know the symptoms. If you had cancer, you'd want to know what the symptoms were, what you could expect. Well, I can tell you, I can tell you, I'm going to tell you, you need to understand this. Imagine going to the doctor, he does some tests on you and goes, man, he's he's got cancer, but I'm not going to tell him. Would that be a good doctor? If I told him, he might get angry. Uh, He might get offended. He might leave me and go get a second opinion. No, man, you want to say, doctor, hit me. Tell me what's wrong. What is wrong? Well, it's bad, but I might offend you if I tell you. Tell me, tell me. And so I'm going to tell you, I'm going to try and convince you why you need to understand the doctrine of sin. And not just a little bit either. Not one of these, oh, yeah, I'm a sinner. You know, everybody says that. You get around Christians and go, yeah, I guess it's cool to say you're a sinner. Ah, I'm a sinner. But if you say, hey, you're a sinner. Hey, what? They all of a sudden get offended because now you, are you saying I'm a sinner? Well, isn't that what you just said? But yeah, I was just kidding. (laughs) But why do you need to understand sin? Here it is. Can you understand the grace, mercy, and love, and kindness, and compassion, and patience of God without knowing about sin? No. I mean, you can know them a little bit, but you can't really know them. You find somebody who's kind of flipping and ho-hum about those things, who kind of just thinks to themselves, oh yeah, God's grace, grace, greater than all our sins. Mm. Oh yeah, God loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. I mean, what's wrong with that person? I'll tell you what's wrong with that person. That person doesn't understand What a great sinner they are. And how every sin they commit begs God to destroy them. And that the only reason they're even breathing in that moment, not in hell, is because God, by his mercy and grace, is keeping them back for what would be just and good for him to do, which would be to destroy them. And that is why people who really understand their sin are the ones who just, man, I love God. I love His grace and His mercy. Because they know what sinners they are. You know, if you want to really see the radiance and sparkle of diamonds, you put them on black velvet. And the contrast is great. Well, in the same way, you want to see the magnitude of God's grace, the magnitude of his mercy, his patience, his long-suffering, his compassion towards us, then you look at those things in the backdrop of sin, and then you go, whoa, incredible. Second, can you understand the doctrine of predestination without a thorough knowledge of sin? No. I, you know, every time I teach on this, there's always the person who comes up and they just call, I don't understand. I, I don't understand. I mean, I see it says that God predestines us right there. But it doesn't seem right. It just doesn't seem just. Why would God choose some and not others? And then I like to say, so tell me about sin. And they say, what? That's why you don't understand predestination. 
what do you, what do you think would happen if God said, okay, I'm not predestinating anybody to salvation. I'll just wait. Come, all you who believe. How many would come? No one. In heaven on judgment day, everybody would be on the hell side. And that's all. No one would come. And believe me, you don't want to say, well, you know, I don't think God's being fair. You don't want fair when you're a sinner. You want mercy. You want God's mercy to hold back the judgment you deserve so that you can receive the undeserved, unearned grace which he's willing to give you in Christ. That's what you want. If God waited around for people to seek him, no one would come. Because the only reason men seek God is in response to God first seeking them. Third, can you understand the doctrine of salvation and the gospel without the knowledge of sin? No. I mean, what do you need saved from if there's no sin? And what amazing is a lot of churches never teach on sin. Why do you need to be saved from what? What is the gospel? The gospel is God's message of how to escape the consequences of sin. What about the atonement? What is that about? About being cleansed from sin. What about propitiation? Satisfying the wrath of God against sin. What about redemption? Being purchased from the consequences of sin. Yet all the doctrines of salvation cannot be understood unless you really understand sin. Four, can you properly parent your children without a knowledge of sin and how it affects your child? No. I'm telling you, if you come home from the hospital, we were just talking about this with our kids recently, how it's really strange when you have your first child. You you know, you go to the hospital and you're all nervous and your wife goes through labor, has the child, and, and, you know, there's just this big, you know, I don't know, hive of nurses running around all smiley and cleaning your kids and poking them and putting them in a little plexiglass cube and bring them to you whenever they need feeded. And you're just like, oh, they're just so cute. And it's great. And then the next day they say, later. <laughs> and they give you your child. They actually give you your baby and send you home. You're thinking, but, but we don't know what we're doing. Now, what if you were one of those parents and you actually thought that your child was perfect and innocent? Would you ever be depressed? Because then when they started showing their depravity, the only conclusion you could come to is you made them that way. And really, you did. But not in the way you think. They were born sinners. You didn't make them that way. They were sinners because they were your children, because you were your parents' children all the way back to Adam and Eve. Now, once you understand that your child is a sinner and they're prone to wander and prone to stray, then you can, from the very beginning, teach them about their disease, its consequences, its symptoms, and cure. And that's what parenting's all about. That is the most important thing about parenting. Five, can you understand the process of sanctification without a thorough knowledge of sin? No. How can you learn to grow in holiness if you don't know how to grow away from sin? Avoid temptation to sin. Flee from sin. Say no to sin. You can't. What about evangelism? There are so many gimmicks out there. Oh, there are so many gimmicks. They just eke me. I just wonder sometimes, I start wondering, now God, should I just stand up, yell at the preacher, tell him to sit down, go up there, and just preach? I mean, tell him about Jesus. I don't want to hear anything about raising hands. I don't want to hear anything about walking forward. I don't want to hear anything about praying a sinner's prayer. You can go up to anybody on the street and say, 100 bucks, pray the prayer, they'll do it. And it doesn't save them. There's only one way a person gets saved, and that is through the gospel. You go up to somebody, hey, you know, I have some philosophical arguments. Great. People come to me, oh, yeah, I shared with somebody. Oh, good. You shared with them, huh? Yeah, yeah, what'd you do? Oh, well, we talked about the existence of God, and I said, well, 
did you tell them the gospel? Well, no, we never got you didn't share with them. The gospel is the power of God for all who believe the power of God for all who believe the only power of God for all who believe. The gospel is the dynamite. You deliver the goods and then the Holy Spirit makes it work. The gospel is the dynamite. God pushes the plunger. That's it. You're just a delivery person. You go there and say, hey, this is the gospel. This is who you are. This is who Christ is. And this is how to appropriate the truth. Push the plunger. Go, God, go. (laughs) Sometimes he does. Sometimes he doesn't. But God does that part. You deliver the dynamite. There are so many methods and gimmicks and people out there thinking they're doing the work of God, but they never tell people, you were a sinner and Jesus is the Savior. He lived a perfect life. He died on the cross for your sins and was buried and rose again the third day. If you place your faith in him, trusting only in what he did to save you, he will. That, that little bit of the message just never gets out. It just never quite comes out. Seven, can you have a correct view of politics, government, and the world without a knowledge of sin and its consequences? No. I mean, there are a lot of well-intentioned Christians out there who are doing everything they can to try and help the government, you know, stem the tides of perversion. It doesn't work. Should we look to the government for deliverance from the consequences of our sin? No. Are, are more laws or stiffer laws or greater penalties going to save sinners from hell? No. Listen, you could take a person who knows Jesus, who's saved, and put him into a totally lawless society that doesn't have any laws, that permits any sort of wicked behavior, and they're still going to do what's right. Why? Because they live by a higher law. It's irrelevant. But I'm telling you, you take a sinner who's in rebellion against God and you constrain them, they're still a sinner against God. It doesn't fix them. It doesn't fix them. The gospel is what fixes them. Men are sinners. And I'm telling you, there are a lot of people who put a lot of money and a lot of effort in trying to fix people through government. Never works. Eight. What about the eternal punishment of sinners in hell? There's some people who just say, I just, I just could never believe in a God who would punish sinners in hell for all eternity. Then you don't believe in God because there's only one God and he does it. And you know why he does it? A lot of people have this idea in their mind that when they, they, an unbeliever dies, they see God and they go, Oh, he exists. Jesus is real. The Bible's true. I repent in dust and ashes. And God says, too late, pal. Into hell you go. That's not what happens. They hate God all their life on earth. They die and they hate God more. And as eternity continues, they hate him more and more and more. They shake their fist at him. Their weeping and gnashing of teeth is not because they've repented and now they can't go to heaven. It's because they hate God and they would never want to go to heaven. And so if you don't understand man's sinfulness, his hostility towards God apart from the grace of God, you'll never understand why hell is a good thing. A good thing. A just thing. And you wonder why churches are doctrinally sick and dying and dead? Most churches today are making a conscious effort not to preach about sin. It's like the doctor, you know, you go to the doctor and he finds some terminal illness in you. He doesn't tell you he's a bad doctor. You want a doctor that tells you the truth. Our seeker-sensitive churches today, no sin, never mention sin, never mention repentance, never mention the wrath of God, never mention hell, never do church discipline. You wonder why those churches are sick and full of people who don't know Christ. Why? Because sin is absent, and sin's the whole problem. Sin is the disease. How can you get somebody to be cured from a disease they don't even know they have, and you don't want to tell them they have it? They are pathetic physicians. Thomas Watson said, 
Many ministers sew pillows under their people's heads so that they do not awake until they're in hell. And that's what these people are doing. That is exactly what they're doing. And that's what we see in our text too. Here Jesus has been with them three years. He's the son of God. He's done the miracles of God. He's told them he's God. They've had revelation. He's the Christ, the son of God. He's got, you know, every single thing. He's given them the power to work miracles. They've done it. They've seen it. And then what happens? He comes out the mouth. They're arguing and they're bickering and they're wanting a miracle. No, he can't do it. And Jesus just, ah. You perverted generation. Sin had totally distorted their view. They were missing the big point. Now, if you're out there thinking, okay, Jack, I'm convinced now. I'm a sinner. But how far has my disease progressed? I mean, what stage am I in? Five. (laughs) Defcon five. That's where you're at. You are totally depraved, thoroughly sinful, completely corrupt. Now, whenever you start talking about the doctrine of total depravity, people start getting, wait, wait a second here. I'm not as bad as other people. A lot of people object to the doctrine of total depravity because they don't even know what it means. Let me give you, I think, the best definition I have ever come across from the Evangelical Dictionary of Biblical Theology. Quote, total depravity is the scriptural teaching that mankind is totally, thoroughly, and completely corrupted by sin in all parts of his being. Total depravity means that man is unable to please God on his own or or any saving merit from God. It is also helpful to understand what total depravity does not mean. It does not mean, first of all, that people cannot do things which are relatively good in the sight of other men. Secondly, it does not mean that all men are as sinful as they can become. Third, it does not mean that men have no concept of good and evil. Four, it does not mean that men, because of their depravity, will indulge in every sin to every degree. End quote. That is a great definition. Total depravity just means that sin has affected every part of you. Not that, you know, everybody's a Hitler. The scriptures teach you are corrupted in every part, totally Corrupted by sin. There is no innocent part of you unaffected by sin. So we've looked at the origin of sin, the pervasiveness of sin. Now, let's look at the degree to which this generation and others is infected by sinful perversion. Why did God judge the world with a flood? Do you remember? Key verse, Genesis 6, 5. It says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continuously. Now that is a masterful sentence. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart, only evil continuously. That is bad. That is stage five. But oh, you say, but yeah, then he said the flood. And he wiped out all those wicked people. And so that fixed that. No, remember what we were meant, read after the flood? Genesis 8, 21. I'm not going to curse the earth again, though the intents of man's heart are evil from his what? Youth. All the flood did was decrease the number of sinners. It didn't fix the problem. But, says one, you know what? I see I'm a sinner, but I can change myself. I'm going to say, just say no to sin, like drugs, and I'm going to get my act together, be more moral, more holy, more right before God, and then he'll accept me. Jeremiah 13.23 says, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Michael Jackson accepted here. (laughs) Or the leopard his spots? then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. Can the leopard just say, you know, I'm tired of these spots and take them off? No. No. But you say, my heart tells me I'm a a good person. I'm not that bad. I'm not that evil. Really? 
Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is desperately sick and incurably wicked. Who can know it? Proverbs 28, 26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. You know what Jesus thinks of your heart? Mark 7, 21 through 23, From within... Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, adulteries, deeds of coveting and wickedness, as well as deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things proceed from within and defile the man. But wait, one says, I know I'm a sinner, but I'm going to seek Christ. I'm going to find Christ. I'm going to figure out the way to heaven, and then he's going to save me, and I'll escape. Really? John three nineteen through 20. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. Jesus is the light of the world. Apart from the grace of God, men are repelled by Jesus, repelled by the truth. They will not come to the light lest their deeds should be exposed It's as if God put a pure, cold glass of water in the midst of a dry, thirsty humanity and said, drink, and everybody ran away. And so he has to pull out the lasso of his grace, lasso him and say, come here. Drink. That's That's what that word means in John 6. No one comes to the Father except through the Son. No one comes to the Son unless the Father lasso him and drag him against his will draw him and you still think well you know okay i'm a sinner okay i see here that if it wasn't for god's grace i wouldn't be seeking seeking god but i'm i'm really not that bad Well, here's what the Apostle Paul said in his section where he's dealing with just how sinful men are towards the middle of Romans 3, verses 10 through 18. And what's interesting in this portion of Scripture, he's merely quoting other Scriptures. Everything he says here are all quotes from other Old Testament texts. So this is doubly inspired. It was inspired the first time, and now he's inspired to say it the second time. And this is what he says is God's estimation of everyone. Now you think about this the next time you hear, oh, so-and-so, he's a good person. There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That is God's estimation of all mankind. A sinful, perverted generation. Well, we've got a problem. We've got a really big problem. Because not only do we have the origin of sin, not only do we have the pervasiveness of sins, not only do we have this incredible depth of sin, sin affects us in bad ways. And we've already seen it in John. And we see it here too. John says men, because they're sinners, don't want to come to the light. Paul says in Romans 3, there are none who seek after God. That is a problem. That's the guy who has the terminal disease and he won't go to the doctor. He doesn't want to go to the doctor. Even though he knows he has the disease. That happens sometimes. People know they're sick and I'm not going to a doctor. I'd just rather die. And they do. The Apostle Paul says in Romans one twenty one, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart is darkened. Some people say, well, I may be a sinner, I may be corrupt, I may be totally separate from God, and I may love my sin, but I'll tell you this, I have a mind, I have a heart, I have a reasoning, I have a conscience, and I'm going to figure this out, and I'm not going to hell. No, you aren't. Paul says you, you become futile in your speculations, and your foolish heart is darkened to the truth. 
Later in Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, Paul says, For those who are according to flesh, set their minds in the things of the flesh, and those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mind set in the flesh is death, but the mind set in the spirit is life and peace. Because the mind set in the flesh, listen to this, is hostile towards God. Two, for it does not subject itself to the law of God. Three, for it is not even able to do so. And four, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. That's a problem. If this message is what saves you and you can't understand that, you're in big trouble. If your whole purpose in life is to glorify God and you cannot please him on your own, you are in trouble. Titus 1.15 says, To the pure all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure, but both their mind and their consciences are defiled. Do you get what the scriptures are teaching here? People are sinners. They are sinners big time, through and through, totally corrupt. Their heart is darkened. Their conscience is defiled. Their speculations are futile. They don't seek light. They love darkness. They won't come to Christ. There is none who seeks God, not even one. They can't please God. The message is in God's word, but they can't understand God's word. The purpose of their existence is to give glory to God. They can't do it. This is what we mean when we talk about hopeless, helpless sinners. That's what we're talking about. God, because we are totally helpless, comes and he saves us by his grace. And we do not contribute anything. Turn to Romans chapter 5, where we will look at the cure briefly here. We've looked at it many other times. This is the good part of the whole sermon. Romans chapter 5, the cure. Look at what he says at the beginning of the chapter. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received, through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we exult in the hope of the glory of God. This word justified means made right before God. We are made right before God through Jesus Christ because of God's grace. That's what he's saying there. Skip down to verse 6. Now this is what's incredible. You don't, know under sin, you don't understand sin, then you don't think this is incredible. But you understand what we just looked at, this is really incredible. Romans 5, 6. For while we were still helpless, there's the hopeless, helpless sinner. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Here I am. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man some would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is amazing. We're ungodly, we're helpless, and we're sinful, and Christ is sent to die for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. That is incredible. Saved from God's wrath through Christ, by Christ's blood, his death? Yes. For if, while we were, now he uses a different term, enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled or already having been saved, we shall be saved by his life. And not only this, but we also exult glory in God through the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received this reconciliation. This is incredible. Now, when you understand that, you just realize we're down there. We're blind, groveling, God hating enemies and sinners. And God, by his grace, looks down on these pathetic, pitiful worms, and he says, I will save some of them. And he does. As many as believed in him, he gives the right to become children of God. As many as receive him. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
Paul tells the Corinthians, what I delivered you of first importance, which you also received and which you also stand. What is it? That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day. Yeah, you believe that? God will change you. He will transform your life. He will cure your disease. And it's the only thing that will work. I can think of no other hymn that describes the cure for sin better than Julia Johnston's hymn, Grace Greater Than Our Sins. Let me just read the words to you. Think about this. Think about this in light of everything we've just studied. Marvelous grace of our loving Lord, grace that exceeds our sin and our guilt. Yonder on Calvary's mount outpoured, there where the blood of the Lamb was spilt. Sin and despair, like sea waves cold, threaten the soul with infinite loss. Grace that is greater, yes, grace untold, points to the refuge, the mighty cross. Dark is the stain that we cannot hide. What can avail to wash it away? Look, there is a flowing, a crimson tide, whiter than snow you may be today. Marvelous, infinite, matchless grace freely bestowed on all who believe. You that are longing to see his face, will you this moment his grace receive? Then the chorus, grace, grace, God's grace, grace that will pardon and cleanse within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all of our sin. And that is the cure. It's the only one. So you know what's great about it? You are a wicked and perverted generation. But God's grace is sufficient to save any sinner from their sin. And he will do it, and he has done it. And if you don't know Jesus Christ, if you don't love Christ, if you don't love God, then you need to repent of your sins and receive To as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Do it this morning, and God will save you, apart from anything you do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness to us. We thank you that your word is so crystal clear about our fatal disease called sin, and yet it is also very clear about its cure. Father, if there is anybody here who doesn't know Christ, I pray right now they would cry out in their heart in desperation and just beg you to save them. We thank you that you came to justify the ungodly. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that, Father, if we confess with our mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in our heart that you raised him from the dead, we will be saved. Father, may that happen in hearts this morning. And for the rest of us, may we meditate on our sin, our corruption, our unworthiness before you. And then in contrast, marvel and praise you for your grace, your mercy, your justice, your holiness, and all your goodness. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.